Hello, friends, and welcome to The One. This is your host, Shabbat Singh. This month, we're going to republish our very first episode, an interview with Pav Singh on his excellent book, 1984, India's Guilty Secret. As we move into November, a somber time in the Sikh memory, we remember the devastating pogroms that swept Delhi and the rest of India and saw the deaths of thousands and thousands of Sikhs at the hands of government-directed mobs in street violence. This episode and this story are particularly cogent now as an uprising is taking place in Punjab among farmers demanding control, continued control over their long existing systems of trade, pricing, etc. The story of this uprising is inspiring, but I'm sure for many of us is also worrying because we know that while the spirit of these farmers, many of them sick, is strong and ready to make change and stand up for themselves, we know the extents that the state will go to to protect their material interests. And in this particular situation, we have the state and massive corporations interested in privatizing these systems of long list, long existing systems of agrarian trade in Punjab uh, for their own benefit and control over said systems and markets. So please have a listen. Once again, if you haven't listened to it before, this uh, interview lays out plainly and clearly in a way I think no other book has done before exactly how the pogroms were planned and executed by the ruling Congress party and its sycophants. Let's learn from this time. Let's prepare for what the possibility of what could come and let's come together to organize and be ready. Let's support those farmers in Punjab and let's continue this fight for autonomy, for freedom, and for justice. Thank you. A content warning to everybody listening. There will be mentions of sexual assault in this episode. I just want everybody to be aware before they start listening. Nothing overly explicit or gratuitous, just uh, My guest today is Pav Singh, uh, here to discuss his new book, 1984, India's Guilty Secret. Pav was born in Leeds, England, the son of Punjabi immigrants. In 2004, he spent a year in India researching the full extent of the pogroms and the subsequent cover-up. His research led to the pivotal and authoritative report, 1984, Six Kristallnacht, which was first released to the UK Parliament in 2005 and substantially expanded in 2009. In his role as a community advocate at the Wiener Holocaust Library for the Study of the Holocaust and Genocide, London, he curated the exhibition, the 1984 anti-Sikh pogroms remembered in 2014 with Delhi-based photography, Gaudi Gill. Pav Singh, welcome to The One. Thank you. So before getting into the events of uh, 1984, I'd like to lay bare the context in which this happens. Uh, because the violence, rape, and torture of the Delhi pogroms is so brutal, it almost feels surreal to the reader or listener with little or no prior exposure to the images and stories of uh, Chorasi 84 in Punjabi. So I, I want us to talk about how this could possibly take place and, and be acted out by 
citizens against other citizens based solely on religious lines uh, and how it could be so brutal. So I think that a lot of this story ultimately starts in colonialism, but a lot of the initial sort of intercommunal violence that we see in Indian history, if I'm not mistaken, is in partition. So um, can you talk a little bit about partition and how intercommunal violence took place and, and why? Sure. So partition took place in 1947, the year in which the British decided to leave India. And leaving India, they partitioned the country into two separate states, the larger block being India and Pakistan. Now, this was done in a very hurriedly manner with no interest in communities who had lived side by side for centuries um, and ultimately it resulted in a bloodbath up to a million people um, it's been reported were killed in the exchange of populations between the two new nations and in particular in the state of Punjab um, the state was partitioned cut into two between the two nations um, and many Sikhs and Hindus were killed on the Pakistan side, and many Muslims were killed on the India side. Had violence like this, intercommunal violence uh, between religions, explicitly happened much uh, before in history? Do we do we know about that? I mean, there's not many instances where it, it did happen, and if it ever did happen, it there was usually a political backing for it. Mm -hmm. So there was some violence between Sikh um, Hindus and Muslims in the twenties, but really the run up to partition was when most of the violence took place, and it was very politically orientated. Um, so the, the 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 politicians and the parties would back mobs to turn against their the opposite neighbors. So I actually wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that there was such a political influence behind the mob violence of partition itself. That's uh, really interesting to know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one famous case was um, just a few months before partition in the city of Calcutta in West Bengal, where there was a day of action called by the Muslim League. And then that day of action ended up in massacres and rapes between um, Hindus and, um, and and Muslims in that area. So there was always a, a political backing to any of any of the violence that took place. Which seems to make a lot of sense. Um, I, this isn't really the purview of this episode, but it, it, as I understand, a lot of the divisions that were created between particularly religions in India is a relatively modern thing in that um, pre kind of census taking British, you had um, an in, a populace that tended to identify with each other more along regional lines than religious lines. And, and there wasn't so much of a, a religious kind of divide uh, between communities. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. Um, with, with any ruler, they tend to divide the population and rule. And I think the British mastered that tactic of dividing and ruling the population of India. Um, so they would create separate legislation for different communities, separate voting um, rights for, for the different communities that were not in existence in the past. Mm. Um, so they certainly encouraged different um, faiths over each other particularly in, in, in the bureaucracy and the administration of, of British India. The term that's now associated with this, these sort of separate communities and the, the often violent or, or sometimes violent interactions that happen between them, is that what's called communalism uh, in modern India? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is um, communalism is, is, is a hatred or encouraging hatred between different communities. But in the Indian context, it's usually associated with religion. Um, so it would be communalism between Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Christians, Parsis. So we do see a, a thread of this division of communities and an encouragement of violence between them that is rooted in colonial 
reshaping of culture that leads into the formation of a nation state. Again, a, a new thing for India, uh, as, as far as I understand. Uh, and, and with the creation of a nation state and these separations of communities and this massive violence that erupts between um, uh, different religious groups around partition, you, would you say that, that that kind of the the first half of the 20th century is sort of the beginning of the mentalities that allow for the type of violence uh, that we see in 1984? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could see it in the 20s, but more, or less, more, more in the 30s and 40s, where you had armed militias, particularly Hindu Vat militias, who had infiltrated the Congress party at the time, which was called the Indian National Congress. And these groups were really getting ready um, for the violence that was that was to come. And it was actually Nehru after partition, and even during partition, was trying his hardest to get rid of these elements from the Congress party. He's very unsuccessful in, in doing so. When even the violence was taking place, he, he himself would go on the streets and uh, harangue mobs to stop the violence and so did Mahatma Gandhi um, but they just seemed to be um, very strong very organized they were organized in a kind of a, a pseudo military way um, and a lot of them basing their organization on on you know groups like the Hitler Youth and they they um, you know they, their heroes were were from Germany so these groups were very very dangerous um, and ultimately it was this group that um, um, one of the members of this group that assassinated um, Mahatma Gandhi um, just after partition. And so are these groups what, I don't know if when the term kind of init- originated, but are these groups that adhered to uh, Hindutva or sort of a Hindu nationalist, Hindu fascist um, ideology? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's their origins. Yes. Um, Again, I don't want to get too too off track, and, and we will get uh, start moving towards uh, 1984. But I think that I was listening to a program recently that um, talked about the the Holocaust of the Jews uh, in Europe around in, in the 30s and 40s. And the author that I was uh, listening to, I believe it was Kahindi Williams, was basically pointing out that massive genocide was sort of par for the course for colonial powers of the day. Look at King Leopold in Belgium. You look, you know, obviously at Hitler, at the the British in India, the French in Africa, the, the Belgians in Africa. There are many holocausts in a way. There are, there are millions and millions of people murdered at the hands of colonial powers. Um, and also the same sort of birth of fascistic ideas that lead to violence later on down the road, particularly in place, a place like Rwanda. Do you see a, a, a connection between that and then what was also happening in India under the British? I do, yes. I mean, I, uh, one feature of many ruling classes in the world is that they will do anything to stay in power, be it inflicting massacres and genocidal massacres on minorities, violence against women, or, or so forth. They they do have these weapons in their armour to do such things. Um, and particularly, they use these tactics against so-called troublesome minorities. So those minorities don't, who don't quite fit with their own um, kind of um, nation state ideology so if a particular ruling class has a vision of a of a, a hindu state or a, in the german context a, an aryan state they need to create the other sort of create a scapegoat in order to rally their their followers and 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 the masses against um, a perceived enemy of of the state so in the german context it was the jews that were targeted um, Jews who um, hitherto were the most patriotic of Germans. Right. Um, you know, they won their stripes in the Kaiser's armies in the First World War. Uh, First World War, 
But um, you know, they that didn't really matter to 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 the Nazis. Uh, they needed an enemy to blame for all the ills of Germany after the First World War and and the awful depression that Germany fell into um, during the late twenties and thirties. It was very convenient for 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 the Nazis to 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 attack the the Jews, building on years and years of a history of anti-Semitism in in Europe um, and in 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 Eastern Europe, and the same in in places like Rwanda, where you know it was the Tutsis that were targeted, and there was a, a spark that was created in an assassination, and and it's that assassination um, that was used as an excuse to trigger mass mass murder. There's a lot of, seems like there are a lot of um, corollaries between 84 in Delhi and the events in Rwanda. Of course, the length and, and the number of dead uh, in Rwanda is, is, is massive, but there's certainly similarities in the sense of a, a minority group being held up by the colonial administration as a sort of uh, an ideal in a, in a way and, and used to kind of uh, as an administrative class. Uh, as I believe the six were uh, in the 19th and, and early 20th century, particularly in the military and civil service, where they're sort of labeled as these, you know, as a martial race and, and, and all this ideas. And then when that colonial power leaves, that group is sort of favored and therefore they were, they were envied or, or disliked uh, because of that. To make them a subject of ire for common Indians. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if you look at the politics pre-partition and the growing demands of the Sikhs to start looking after their own interests as a minority community in a new India, so there were various demands about autonomy for the state of Punjab, and it was all it was in Nehru's own world, uh, words, which he promised to the Sikhs um, that they would enjoy a glow of freedom in India, um, where they would have control over their their affairs, um, and all these promises were were given by the Indian Congress Party to the Sikhs for the Sikhs to then throw their lot in with um, a new independent India. But then once independence came about, um, the Congress reneged on all those promises. And that really created the seed to 1984. So this, and, and what you're talking about, these terms of autonomy, these promises given by, by Nehru and, and the broader independence, leaders of the broader independence movement, in India include things like control over water rights and certain political autonomies. Can you give a little detail? Absolutely. I mean, Punjab is a basically an agrarian state and it's known as the breadbasket of India. So it's a very much a state of farmers. So issues like water rights electricity is very important to the mass of people in the Punjab. So it wasn't particularly Sikh issues as such. There were generally Punjabi issues, Punjabi demands for more control over the water, electricity, even to have their own capital city, uh, which was promised and then was denied the issue of the Punjabi language and also the issues about representation of Sikhs in the army, which they were very overly represented during the times of the British. But once independence came along, there were steps taken by the new Indian government to reduce their representation in, in the army. So it was a bit of a double whammy against the Sikhs. Sikhs families were Traditionally, if you had two sons in a Sikh family, one would become a farmer and the other would join the army. And then these two jobs were being attacked in the new independent India. Um, so it really was caused, it, it, was, it, was, it was a centre for the, for the friction that was to come. Let's, let's move ahead a little bit and, and talk about the Gandhi family, the descendants of Nehru, 
uh, and the leading, I guess, the leading family of the Congress Party of India. Can you talk a little bit about sort of their origin and, and you know, how fully realized was their power over Indian politics? Sure. I mean, um, just not to confuse your sure. your listeners, uh, Mohandas Gandhi, um, um, well known as the Mahatma Gandhi, had no relation to to the 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 Nehru Gandhi family. He was um, um, no no relation at all. So um, Nehru uh, Pandit Nehru was the first prime minister of newly independent India and her daughter his daughter was um Indira Gandhi um who would then become prime minister from 1966 onwards and then in the 191980s um now this was a family that was heavily involved in the Indian National Congress um to the run up to independence and the Indian National Congress was a, a counterpart to the Muslim League um who increasingly was calling for their own separate Muslim state of Pakistan. The Gandhi and the Nehru Gandhi family were also, in Indian context, very much the top of the tree. Um, they were members of uh, the Brahmin caste. Now, the Brahmin caste are the priestly caste um, of, of Hindus. So really, the top caste in India who controlled... Um, the religious text, um, um, and so forth. So there was an element of sort of casteism in 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 the fact that this family wielded so much power during and after um, independence, um, and it's it's still an, uh, a quite a strong issue um, in India uh, currently, where. Um, very much high caste people wield power at the top of the administration senior police officers and senior judges come from from that section of 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 indian society can you talk about the period known as the emergency and the fall of gandhi uh, from grace as prime minister and the subsequent political upheaval um Come 1975, um, the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, was called to the court um, for um, malpractices. And, and it was as a consequence of that that she imposed uh, a state of emergency from 1975 to 1977. Um, this was ultimately a... Um, opposition leaders were imprisoned, the press was banned, censorship was introduced, and uh, quite a lot of pretty awful things happened in those two years. Uh, her son, Sanjay Gandhi, implemented a sterilization um, program, sterilizing the, particularly the poor in exchange um, for, 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 um, sort Jesus. of ridiculous things like resi uh, transistor radios, Jesus. um, in exchange of, uh, sterilization. So it was in a pretty, pretty awful time. Um, and lots of, um, poor neighborhoods and slums were cleared in those, in those years as well to make way for the big mansions of, of new middle-class, middle-class India. Um, so come 1970, um, 1977, election was called and the, the people rejected the Congress party outright. Mrs. Gandhi was arrested and a new government was, was formed for a brief period for, for, for another two, three years before Congress then came back. Right. And they swept back into power in 1980. Uh, yeah. And, and, so throughout this whole period, during the emergency, the six, and in particular the Akali Dal political party, play a foil to Congress in terms of vocal criticism. Are there other elements around India that are sort of experiencing similar things in terms of regional groups and parties that are, that are kind of raising a voice against uh, Congress? Yes, absolutely. Um, the fact that the Congress decided that they wanted to centralise power in a nation that was actually built up of different nations and regions would be problematic. 
and would cause trouble. And I think that was a consequence of that. So not only the Punjabis were up in arms with this new urge of centralization and it got exacerbated during the emergency, but also states in the south and the east were up in arms and many of them joined um, the democracy movement during those those years. Um, so I think in the whole, the move towards centralization resulted in a, in, a, in a backlash, which hasn't really been resolved even to this day. So all of these regional groups are rising up uh, vocally critical of the central government and of the Congress party. And also in the 80s, you also have, you know, the kind of uh, as I understand, the culmination of these grievances uh, that the Sikhs have in Punjab, where the promises of autonomy uh, over the, the things that we discussed before are coming to a head. There's not only the centralization, but then the, the lack of of autonomy is causes a lot of uh, anger and frustration. And this leads us to uh, the Anandpur Agreement, uh, which I believe becomes a uh, part of the platform of the Akali Dal. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it was and, and what it asked for and, and what it meant to, to Sikhs and, and Punjabi politics? Yeah, absolutely. So this came about um, in 1973 when various Sikh groups got together, having lived through decades of this new independent India and a lot of the promises that had been reneged on since then, there was a real feeling of injustice in the community that the promised regional power wasn't given. Uh, they had no rights over water. In fact, uh, water was slowly taken away from the Punjab um, and so was elect electricity. The jobs were disappearing and there was mass unemployment in in the state as well so there was a real sense of the the lot of Sikhs um, weren't satisfied um, but it also mirrored what was also happening in the neighboring state of Kashmir because Kashmir again was having similar problems um, and there was move from the Congress to centralize um, dismiss state government um, and impose virtual martial law in Kashmir as well, um, and that issue um, is still bringing, bringing, uh, brimming to this day. So, there was, it wasn't just Punjab; there was other states that were experiencing similar sort of things. But in the particular um, Anandpur agreement, I mean that that was a, a resolution that most Sikhs adhere to, most Punjabis adhere to at the time. That um, formed the basis for for the negotiations that would start taking place in in the 1980s and so how, do, how does these, this frustration actually lead to a separatist movement in Punjab I don't think I don't think um, it did until after 19, 1984 okay up until 1984 and the, the the attack on the Golden Temple no one um, any none of the established Sikh groups were calling for outright independence from India they were calling for autonomy within India. It was only after Operation Blue Star, the attack on the Golden Temple, that um, groups sprang up that were calling for outright independence. But um, no one was calling for that. There was a, a, a very large mass disobedience movement that was um, headed by the Akali Dal. From 1982 onwards, people caught in arrest, people sitting on um, roads and stopping trains in a very peaceful manner in their thousands and tens of thousands. And then during um, 83 and 84 became hundreds of thousands of farmers who were caught in arrest, um, you know, on a daily basis. So this, this became um, a very big threat to um, the Indian state at that time. So that that's probably one of the reasons why they decided to take drastic measures against this civil rights movement. So it was absolutely a civil rights movement, but was there an effort to label it as a militant movement, particularly when you have the rise of the prominence of uh, 
Sunter Nelson and and the movement around him. And, and can you talk a little bit about him and and how he fits into this broader movement? Yeah, sure. So I think what we need to do is just go back a bit to the politics of the late seventies, when um, Mrs. Gandhi, nineteen seventy-seven, has lost power. It was at that point that Congress, particularly her son Sanjay Gandhi, along with Gyani Jail Singh. Now Gyani Jail Singh was used to be a home minister um, and a chief minister of the Punjab, so he he also had lost power. So these characters um, decided that the only way they could get back to power in Punjab, in particular, was to attack the Akali Dal and divide it and set it, you know, different groups between itself. Um, and the, the, the idea was to encourage particularly a very charismatic leader like Santhanjanel Singh, who was, um, who was sort of becoming more popular at the time, encourage him. Um, I mean, in my view, unknowingly to him, mm-hmm. uh, he was being used in the late 70s to support the Congress Party. At a time when the Kali Dal in Punjab was in power um, and weren't, weren't really doing much in terms of helping the Punjabi cause, um, cause. Um, you know, the Ananpur Seb resolution, which they'd signed up to, a few years earlier, wasn't even on the table anymore. So Kali Dal, um, you know, were again using politics and the lack of um, interest in the Anandpur uh, Seven. That's why he had groups like uh, the, the 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 Ksali group around Santa Janel Singh, who started raise, raising demands. And the Congress actually saw that and thought, well, actually, we'll we'll start encouraging that and supporting that group of people in order to divide the Akalis. Um, but once they got into power in 1980, they then discarded Sant Janel Singh and his group and just carried on because they'd made it to power in Punjab. Right, they got what they did. wanted. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. This brings us to the 80s, and the movement around Janel Singh, how would you characterize what he was doing? And, and how would you characterize... Or how what what was the the government's response? There's there's a there seems to have been a a use of his image and the 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 militant image of the Taksalis uh, to create an atmosphere uh, of fear around six. Uh, would you say that's true? And and would you talk a little bit about? Sunter Nelson and, and the lead up to Operation Blue Star. Yeah, sure. So from the Indian state point of view, um, they and the press uh, was culpable in creating um, an atmosphere where pretty much every crime in the Punjab was attributed to um, groups, particularly around Sunter Nelson. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was... A, Slowly but surely, everything was, um, you know, and the atmosphere was poisoned and communalism was encouraged. Um, and this creation of the other was slowly being put into the minds of um, Hindu Punjabis in particular, that, you know, everything that was going wrong was, was to do with these groups. Um, but on the... You know, on the Sikh side, and on particularly the, the, the group around Sant Janel Singh, I mean, you know, no one would, would, would say that um, Sant Janel Singh is not a controversial figure. He is, and he still remains to be a controversial figure, even to Sikhs to this, to this day. Um, and um, my book didn't delve too much into into him. My, my, my book was more centred around November 84 and the cover-up that took place 33 years later. Um, so I've sort of taken a balanced view of Sant Janel Singh. So on the one hand, for many people around him, close to him, um, he was this figure that um, was trying to get people, Sikhs, back to the basics of Sikhs, uh, Sikhi, um, not taking drugs, alcohol 
growing their beard, hair and so forth and really becoming um, a, a community that, um, you know, defended the weak, um, defended women um, and, 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 and so forth. So that was one side of uh, um, things. But the other side um, was uh, the view that um, he, he was sort of a kind of a rustic, he was quite rustic in his language um, and slowly kind of became more of a kind of a Malcolm X sort of um, militant figure. Um, counterpose that with the other leader of the Akali Dal, Santalongawal, who was more of a Gandhian um, uh, type of leader who believed in non-violence um, and when negotiating with the government uh, was very much um, of the view that we needed an agreement for the Sikhs to live peacefully in in, in India, whereas Sant Janel Singh and his followers were more, you know, the, the, the analogy with, I do make the analogy with Malcolm X is, you know, if, 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 if someone's respectful, be respectful to them, but if they um, lay, lay their hand on your shoulder, send them to the grave. Right. Grave. So, right. I think that um, then um, sort of laid the ground as as to what was going to then follow follow on um so you know in terms of saint Janelsing, there is there is two sides of two sides of things and i think that's one thing that i've sort of tried to present um in my book um i would encourage people to um you know research more into what actually took place um i mean there during that period up to operation blue star there were um, many much violence in in Punjab. Um, in particular, there were attacks on uh, Hindu migrants. Um, buses were stopped. Um, Sikhs and Hindus were separated, and Hindus were were shot. Um, but we don't quite know who was behind that violence. Um, some of it may have been attributed to people around Saint Janel Singh, but some of it may well be the state um, and and police vigil vigilante groups. We don't simply know, and and one of the things I'd really like um, at the end of all this is not just an investigation into the whole issue of November eighty four, but what was what who was actually behind the attacks on on innocent Hindus in in Punjab? I think that for the purpose of this book, it makes sense that you would avoid talking uh, so much about Santhanel Singh and the movement around him. I think that in this sort of anti-Sikh riot narrative that we've been given, the militancy in the Punjab is given some sort of like a tacit justification for what happens to the innocent Sikhs in November of 84, which is obviously wrong to, to make that claim. And it distracts from the real question, which is uh, how and why uh, did a state orchestrate a genocide against its own people and who is responsible and how do we find justice? Can you now lead us into the events that lead up to the attacks of uh, November 1984? Um Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated about 9.20 in the morning on the 31st of October. Um, and, I mean, for a full 24 hours, I mean, people did expect some violence to take place, revenge. People expected some seats to be roughed up, and there were cases of small-scale violence. There was an attack on the president of India, Gyani Jail Singh, who was a Sikh, his motor car was was attacked um, on the way to the hospital, but there was only one reported death in the whole twenty four hours after Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated. So, mass of people were angry um, at the assassination, but that didn't lead them to target their own neighbors and start killing in mass, mass numbers. Something took place that then turned 
the anger into something much, much bigger that would carry on for four days. And we have now eyewitness reports that there was a meeting that took place even before Rajiv Gandhi, Mrs. Gandhi's son, had arrived from, from the airport, um, that the senior Delhi leadership of the Congress party had already met and a member of the Gandhi family, allegedly Arun Nehru, was the mastermind and had gave the green light to the killings to take place. Now this meeting had taken place and we've got testimony now from someone who was close to the president of India that a meeting had taken place and the slogan of Kunda Badla Kun, Blood for Blood, was taken at that meeting. Um, and the idea was to mm. get hold of Sikhs, particularly Sikh youth, and stick a, a tire around his neck, fill it with petrol, and burn, burn the person alive. And that was the tactic that was that was going to be employed. Wow. Um, a further meeting took place in the evening of the thirty first, at uh, one of the leading members of the Congress Party in East Delhi, with the commissioner of police who was who was there, and it was that that meeting that the final plans were laid to go into action in the morning of the 1st of November. So uh, you could see that for whole 24 hours they needed these meetings to take place to finalise um, the, the plan and it was in the morning of the 1st of November that mass meetings took place in and around Delhi and in other cities of northern India where leading Congress parties incited their supporters to kill Sikhs and rape Sikh women, and it was at that point that the buses were filled with the mobs, um, and they they were bussed into Sikh neighbourhoods in the morning of November, um, the first, and 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 this then started the the genocide that would carry on for a whole four days. This period of time are are, are often characterised as anti-Sikh riots, and there is this narrative that I kind of alluded to in the introduction about a spontaneous outburst of anger, angry violence caused by uh, the people's reaction to the assassination of Gandhi by her sick bodyguards. But the simple fact, as you mentioned, that uh, there was no violence, no massive uh, violence for 24 hours that alone, aside from the massive amounts of evidence that you put forward in this book, uh, that alone should show that these are not spontaneous riots of anger. These are massively coordinated, planned. Yeah, attacks. I mean, many of your listeners may have gone to India from time to time. And India is disorganized at the best of times. Um, it's, it's, it's got a massive bureaucracy and a corrupt police force um, and you know nothing quite works but all of a sudden on the 1st of November everything came together right um, and this plan um, and the order of this plan was duplicated not just in Delhi but throughout cities towns and villages in northern India particularly where the Congress party was ruling so the pattern was chillingly the same. Mobs were bust into Sikh neighbourhoods. Sikh temples were attacked first. And once they were attacked, and if there were you know, worshippers in there, they were burnt alive. They then publicly brought out the Sikh holy book, the Guru Granth Sahib, into the streets and burnt these religious books publicly. They then um, attacked Sikh homes. Now there were areas where Sikhs in groups defended themselves with whatever weapon they had. So I don't want to sort of paint Sikhs as victims everywhere and women as victims. Sure. There were places where they did defend themselves and sure. there were you know, the countless places where just a small group of Sikhs were able to hold off um, thousands of, of people who were trying to attack them. But what changed was the presence and the arrival of the police, who then took away the weapons that the Sikhs had. 
they assured the Sikhs that they would be protected um, and they were told to go to their houses. And it was only when Sikhs had gone back that the police then allowed the mobs to go back in and can commence. In particular, you talk about uh, Block 11 of Kalyanpuri in East Delhi, where Sikhs had organized themselves and were putting up a defense with firearms against attacking mobs. And you actually named the leader in, in this instance as Dr. Ashok Gupta. Um, throughout the book, you mention this sort of cast of ghouls that are found invariably leading mobs. And in this instance, he was leading a mob that, that was being repulsed by, by armed six. And it was the police that show up and say, hey, we're breaking this up. Sikhs, come out. Give us your weapons. Everything's okay. The six refused. And at gunpoint, the police take the weapons away from six. And as soon as they leave, the mobs that had receded into the alleyways of the neighborhood come back out and, and, and massacre the block. So there's a clear effort between the police and the Congress party to facilitate this mass murder by these groups. Absolutely. And the other um, sort of very worrying element to this, that the army was kept in its barracks throughout this period or most of the time. The army should, and many notable individuals, pleaded with the new Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi and the Home Minister Narasimha Rao to call out the army. Even when the massacres started to take place on November the 1st, these people refused to call out the army. It was only a day after that when the army was finally called, that the army was sent to the areas where there was no violence or where the violence had already taken place. So there was completely ineffectual in stopping the violence. There's definite evidence that the people at the top ensured and facilitated the violence to take place and the killings to turn from hundreds to thousands and the rapes to take place because the army was kept um, well away from, from these um, areas. There are many eyewitness accounts of Congress party leaders or, and members leading groups. Can you kind of name, you know, if you were to do like a starting five of like evil Congress members, who would they be and what did they do? Sure. I mean, such is the cover up and the lack of justice that none of these people have, have been put in front of a court in India. So it's unfortunate that but I have to say allegedly. <laughs> but people in India know these names. They've been cropping up from time to time throughout the inquiries and over over the last thirty three years. But probably at the top of the the tree, in my view, would be Arunaru MP, who was a cousin of Rajiv Gandhi. Now we have evidence from someone close to him that he was the person who was involved in collecting the lists of Sikhs, businesses and homes from the Sikh temple, Sikh temples in Delhi. And these lists were then used to target Sikhs in November 1984. Um, he was also one of the participants in the meetings that took place on the 31st of November. He basically then ensured afterwards that the crimes were, were covered up. And also he sent Sikh policemen um, home as well through the wireless announcements on the 31st of November. So uh, there's a definite pattern here of, of his link to being the orchestrator of, of the violence. And then below him you would have the regional members of parliament and the cabinet minister. So the cabinet minister in particular of East Delhi was um, HKL Bhagat, who led mobs himself. And even, you know, the last official inquiry indicted him for, for the violence, yet the subsequent court case exonerated him. But he was seen leading mobs in East Delhi and paying off mob leaders, so forth. Other leaders included Sajjan Kumar in West Delhi and Jagdish Titler in the centre of Delhi. 
Benamdas Shastri was also an MP who was who was reportedly targeting particularly Sikh children in many instances. So one of the things that has never really come out and been published is it wasn't just the men who were targeted and killed. Many, many children mm. um, were killed as well. Many babies um, were thrown into bonfires. And the real hidden story, the hidden sort of secret of 84 is the extent sexual violence against women and young girls and that's a subject that's really been hidden even by our own community probably due to the fact that rape sexual violence is still a bit of a stigma in, in India and also because such was the in- intensity of the violence that the the issue of rape and sexual violence hasn't really been it's become secondary and never was really addressed the official accounts had completely ignored the rapes and sexual violence blatantly. They didn't want to hear any of it. Um, they didn't. They refused to take testimony of the social workers who took oral accounts of those attacks from from the women. So this is really a kind of a, a thing that we really need to address as well. So yeah, real kind of um, lots of kind of stories that have never been told, and the the press also in India didn't report. The violence. It was only one particular paper, the Indian Express, who, who who did report. But the rest of the press in India was too busy reporting on Mrs. Gandhi and the funeral, but didn't go and send their journalists to where the violence was taking place. And, and none of the papers reported the the rapes. Might also the the Congress kind of stranglehold of power uh, have contributed to that in, in terms of sort of the elite's ability to um, influence media in certain directions or, or outright control? It. I think, um, I mean, there were areas where the press was totally banned. So in the state of Punjab, um, uh, the authorities banned any reporting of the pogroms, complete ban. But outside Punjab, there was nothing stopping you know, the Indian media to report this. There were bans on journalists entering refugee camps, but there wasn't anything stopping. So there was something else going on. Um, And I think that was more to do with what took place between June and November to sort of create this atmosphere of, um, of Sikhs being the other. So after Operation Blue Star, the Indian government published the white paper which completely blamed the Akali Dal and the Sikhs for everything that took place to the run-up to Operation Blue Star. And there was also uh, the creation of documentaries by the Information and Broadcasting Ministry headed by H.K. Hal Bhagat. He created these documentaries that were then shipped to Indian media organisations and to the Indian diaspora, which really put on the table the government side, blaming the Sikhs en masse. So it was a real propaganda um, operation that was taking place between June and November. And I think that sort of um, filled into the real atmosphere of suspicion in India at the time. And probably coloured the covering of everything subsequently, including what happens in November. Now... Some of the moments I think that are uh, the most powerful in your book are when you talk about individual survivors and their families and, and not only what happened to those people during the first days of the pogroms, but what happens immediately in the aftermath. So could you talk about um, maybe a couple of, uh, of individuals or families and to sort of illustrate what happened to some people and what happens to them in the aftermath and the 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 resulting uh, after effects um, that lead us that continue to today um, to those individuals and and to those communities. So what the other thing that I found quite shocking was that the number of injured was much, much less than the number of killed. So you could see that this 
operation objective was to kill people en masse. They didn't want to leave anyone as survivors. So whole-scale communities were wiped out, particularly in the resettlement areas of outside Delhi, and a lot of the villages in northern India um, were also hit, completely wiped out of Sikh communities. And there was a definite operation, um, you know, the, the, the use of not only kerosene, but also a white powder, which, which we now know was phosphorus chemical, that was used, which is very difficult to get to get get hold of in India. You'd have to procure it from a chemical firm, and that was available in abundance to the mob leaders. The mobs had in its element a death squad. Now that death squad had lists of Sikhs to be targeted, and they repeatedly went into Sikh homes to find their victim. And if they didn't find it on the first day, they'd come back in the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day. And there were instances of some of these mobs who would exit Sikh neighbourhoods, and the police outside would say, no, actually, you haven't done your job. We know there are Sikhs hiding in those places. Go back in and finish your job. So it was a very meticulous mm. um, operation, very much on par with how the Nazi death squads were operating in, in Eastern Europe, with lists targeting um, Jews, and making sure that the Jews were um, crossed off on their list um, and their bodies taken away. There, there are so many stories that I've got in this book, and it's sometimes quite yeah. uh, quite difficult to, to, to go over some of them. Um, there have been instances of homes with children and women that were burnt to death. I recall two teenage girls that were taken out of their homes stripped, raped, and then they were burnt alive together. These were two sisters. So there are many, many stories that... The men of the family would be forced to watch, brothers watching their, their sisters, their mothers, uh, yeah. and, and then the whole family being killed, whether the, yeah. the men Absolutely. burnt alive. Yeah, yeah. and there were death. also instances of women being abducted, uh, kidnapped to neighbouring right. villages and gang-raped. Um, for, for the next few days. There was a, a two, th- about 30 or 40 that were taken away from Trilok Priory after all the men had been killed. They were abducted and some of them never never returned. So there is a real sort of hidden story in this that the extent and the enormity of what took place has never been fully acknowledged. And the, the narrative of that anti-Sikh riots has, has really done a lot of damage to the reality it's really it's trivialized and minimized what actually took place which in my mind were a series of genocidal massacres rapes and in many cases genocidal rapes and crimes against humanity these if you haven't actually named the crime how can you ever call people to account yes it's difficult to talk about each one of the the ways in which this was covered up because at every turn where the function of the state in its purported role as a protector of its citizen is thwarted or just completely the opposite is done uh, at really every turn. And it seems that even when there are seemingly well-meaning public officials that are earnest in their judgments or their investigations of the crimes that took place, Ultimately, um, there is a, you know, even with prosecutions of some of these people that you've mentioned, there's then a, a subsequent inaction in terms of actually carrying out prosecutions or, or, or sentencing and things like that. One of the most amazing moments that you detail in the book um, is regarding the uh, first uh, commission under Judge uh, Misra, where, uh, this, and I'm just going to quote uh, length here from the book, Misra says, uh, he's talking to a grieving father who describes the bur- the brutal murder of his son with a ridiculous and deeply insensitive analogy. The judge says to this grieving father whose son was, was murdered during the attack, Sir, your story is a bit like this one. Listen to me carefully. 
Imagine you and your son are going somewhere on a scooter. You stop at the railway crossing. Zillions of cars and scooters are waiting for the train to pass by. No one has any idea about a huge vulture flying high in this, up in the skies right above you. In the vulture's beak, there is a snake. Suddenly, it slithers and manages to free itself. The snake falls down and finally lands on your son, sitting behind you on your scooter. The snake bites his neck. Your son dies that very instant. And that very instant, the vulture lands, collects the snake, and flies away. See? It's no one's fault. Do you think it's somebody's fault? Not really. This is exactly what happened to your family. It's no one's fault. It's quite shocking, really. I mean, the use of metaphors, natural metaphors of nature, has been a recurring theme. So Rajiv Gandhi was the first person two weeks after the massacres took place to use the analogy of a tree falling and the earth shaking, the earth being thousands of Sikhs who'd been killed. So comparing it with a natural phenomena, just to say, look, these things happen and it's no one's fault. And this is the way the state has got away with one of the largest mass murders in independent India. And the use of language of the riot has ensured that no one points the blame at the Congress party or the police. So it's very clever the way they've also used the official inquiries to ensure that we don't talk about genocide. In fact, the, the, the second inquiry led by Judge Nanavati, even before he started his inquiry, he ruled out that it was a genocide because in his view, no, no women or children were killed. And you can see why they didn't want to take the testimonies of those people who'd seen women and children and women raped to be included in the official inquiries, because if they did, they would not would have found it very difficult to come to the conclusion that this was an organized genocidal pogrom. So along with the clear injustice perpetrated by the Indian government, you indicate the silence of Western governments in general, and the UK in particular. But for a couple of UK MPs sympathetic to the plight of the Sikhs, most British officials did not comment on the pogroms, and in some cases seemed to follow the Congress line that the November pogroms were anti-Sikh riots, or simply said that it was an internal Indian matter. So they were deflecting the issue. And your reporting also shows that the pogroms occurred on the eve of a 1.28 billion pound uh, weapons deal from the UK to sell 27 Westland W-30 helicopters to India. Can you talk about the UK's weapons deals to India and how that supported a culture of silence around these gross human rights violations? Sure. I mean, increasingly during the 80s, um, the British saw India a, a very lucrative market for their goods and in particular for their defence equipments like the Westland helicopters. Um, so, you know, for them, they wanted to do as much as they could to make those deals ensured that the Indian authorities were kept sweet. So there was no question of raising any human rights issues. Trade trumped human rights, as it does even to this day. The comparison can be made with Saudi Arabia. We send, sell arms to them and we do not raise human rights issues. This is a recurring issue with a lot of Western governments. The argument that we don't involve ourselves in inter internal matters comes in stark contrast to when the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in China and many people in the West, including in Britain, um, condemned the Chinese authorities for, for carrying out that massacre. There's a lot of double standards taking place and did take place in particular with, with India. A lot of the documents that I used in my book were released in the last two years from the National Archives in, mm -hmm. in London after the 30-year rule. 
And it was in those documents that you could then start linking the trade deals with the silence of the British in terms of November 84 and, and the subsequent years. Um, and there's a lot of you know documents that they've still kept back um, and there are calls now in England for a public inquiry, for those documents to be released. So um, I think the West, and particularly Britain, is very worried about 84 and you know, how to manage that, mm-hmm. because on the one hand, they do have large Sikh communities in the diaspora, but on the other hand, they need to manage their relationship with India. So on the whole, they've taken the Indian side in terms of what took place and the continuing use of the language of the perpetrators of the anti-Sikh riot. And there's no sign even today of any front bencher or even the opposition to call out the Congress party in their role in the massacres or even condemn what took place. So that's quite quite a stain and continues to be a stain yeah. um, in British politics currently. What would, you, what would you envision as justice? I think in terms of justice, I mean, it's quite difficult because half the perpetrators are di- have died. So... You know, the facilitator, Rajiv Gandhi, is no more. H.K. Hale Bhagat, in whose constituency the most Sikhs were killed, has evaded justice and is, is, is long gone and many others have as well. Although there are a couple of characters still in India that there could be some court cases um, begun against them. And there's many, many people on the ground, part of the death squads, police officers who 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 never been called to account but the problem and the problem that we've had for the last 33 years is that there isn't in in existence in India an independent mechanism to bring justice mm. so you know relying on police the police who are also culpable culpable has mm. been a problem relying on the criminal bureau investigation who then came under political pressure to exonerate leaders is a problem there's been junctures where there's been investigations but they haven't been independent and that's the first thing that india needs to look at how do they create something independent so that they could actually investigate properly what took place and I think that's the first thing that they need to do. The second thing is more to do with acknowledgement. So even today, they do not acknowledge the series of crimes that took place, the genocidal massacres, genocidal rapes, and crimes against humanity. And until they start acknowledging and using the right language, we can't start that process of, of getting justice and eventual closure. <laughs>